With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mysteries Abound. A collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, mysteries abound. Welcome everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 72. Today's podcast is entitled, Does Death Exist? A new theory says no. But to begin the show this week, from the www.smithsonianmag.com website, an article written by Joseph Stromberg. How do Death Valley's sailing stones move themselves across the desert. These mysterious rocks have puzzled scientists for decades, until one geologist found the answer on his kitchen table. Start at the Furnace Creek Visitor Centre in Death Valley National Park. Drive 50 miles north on pavement, then head west for another 30 miles on bone-rattling gravel roads. During the drive, which will take you four hours if you make good time, you'll pass sand dunes, a meteor crater, narrow canyons, solitary Joshua trees, and virtually no evidence of human existence whatsoever. But soon after cresting the Cottonwood Mountains, you'll come upon a landscape so out of place, even in this geologically bizarre park, that it almost seems artificial. Racetrack Playa is a dried-up lake bed ringed by mountains, about three miles long and flat as a tabletop. During summer, the cracked floor looks prehistoric under the desert sun. During winter, it's intermittently covered by sheets of ice and dustings of snow. But the dozens of stones scattered across the playa floor are the most puzzling part of the view, ranging from the size of a computer mouse to a microwave. Each one is followed by a track etched into the dirt, like the contrail behind an airplane. Some tracks are straight and just a few feet long, while others stretch the length of a football field and curve gracefully or jut off at sharp angles. 
Staring at these sailing stones, you're torn between a pair of certainties that are simply not compatible. These rocks appear to have moved, propelled by their own volition, across the flat plier floor, and yet rocks just don't move themselves. It's very quiet out there, and it's very open, and you tend to have the plier to yourself, says Alan Van Valkenburg, a park ranger who has worked at Death Valley for nearly 20 years. And the longer you stay out there, it just takes on this incredible sense of mystery. The mystery is rooted in an extraordinary fact. No one has actually seen the rocks move. Explanations for the stone's movement have tended towards the absurd. Magnetism, aliens and mysterious energy fields, for example. Some present-day visitors apparently agree. Van Valkenburg notes that stone theft is a growing problem, perhaps because of perceived special properties. I don't know whether people think they're magic rocks, he says, but of course, as soon as you remove them from the plier, all the magic is lost. But if they're not magic, what really does cause the stones to sail? In 1948, two USGS geologists named Jim McAllister and Alan Agnew set out to answer the question. They proposed that dust devils caused the strange movements, perhaps in combination with the plier's intermittent flooding. In 1952, another geologist tested this hypothesis as directly as he knew how. He soaked a stretch of the plier and used a plane's propeller to create powerful winds. Results were inconclusive. In the following decades, theories drifted towards ice, which can occasionally form on the plier during the winter. During the early 1970s, a pair of geologists, Robert Sharp of Caltech and Dwight Carey of UCLA, attempted to settle once and for all whether ice or wind was responsible. The team visited the racetrack twice a year and meticulously tracked the movements of 30 stones, giving them names. Karen, the largest boulder, was 700 pounds. They planted wooden stakes around the stones, surmising that if ice sheets were responsible, the ice would be frozen to the stakes, thereby immobilising the stones. But some stones still escaped, and despite frequent visits, the pair never saw one move. Still ice remained the primary hypothesis for decades. John Reed, a Hampshire College professor, took student groups to the plier annually from 1987 to 1994 to study the stones. Because of the many parallel tracks, he came away convinced that they were locked together in large ice sheets that were blown by strong winds. But Paula Messina, a geologist at San Jose State, used GPS to create a digital map of the tracks and found that most were in fact not parallel. Furthermore, wind-based models were thrown into doubt when researchers attempted to calculate the wind speeds necessary to move the ice sheets. The lowest figures were hundreds of miles per hour. Enter Ralph Lorenz, a planetary scientist at John Hopkins University. 
In 2006, as part of a project with NASA, Lorenz was setting up a network of miniaturised weather stations in Death Valley. The weather is harsh enough there to serve as an analogue for weather conditions on Mars. But then he discovered the sailing stones. I was intrigued, as everyone is, and I had this instrumentation I was using in desert locations during the summer, he says. We realised we could use it during the winter and try to understand what the conditions really are at the plier. As the research team studied weather patterns on the racetrack, they also looked for rocks that seemed to move on their own in other environments. Scanning the scientific literature, Lorenz learned that the buoyancy of ice helped flat boulders onto Arctic tidal beaches, creating barricades along the shore. The scientists began putting this idea together with what they saw on the racetrack. We saw one instance where there was a rock trail and it looked like it hit another rock and bounced. But the trail didn't go all the way up to the other rock. Like it was repelled somehow, said Lorenz. We thought that if there was a collar of ice around the rock, then it might be easy to imagine why it might bounce. Eventually Lorenz employed a tried and true method for testing his nascent idea. The kitchen table experiment. I took a small rock and put it in a piece of Tupperware and filled it with water so there was an inch of water with the bit of the rock sticking out, he says. I put it in the freezer and that then gave me a slab of ice with a rock sticking out of it. He flipped the rock ice hybrid upside down and floated it in a tray of water with sand on the bottom. By merely blowing gently on the ice, he realised, he could send the embedded rock gliding across the tray, scraping a trail in the sand as it moved. After decades of theoretical calculations by countless scientists, the answer seemed to be sitting on his tabletop. Lorenz and his team presented their new model in a 2011 paper. Basically, a slab of ice forms around a rock, and the liquid level changes so that the rock gets floated out of the mud, he explains. It's a small floating ice sheet, which happens to have a keel facing down that can dig a trail in the soft mud. Calculations show that in this scenario, the ice causes virtually no friction on the water, so the stones are able to glide with just a slight breeze. The team argues that their model accounts for the movement far better than any other, since it doesn't require massive wind speeds or enormous ice sheets. Still, says Ranger van Valkenburg, most visitors to the racetrack seem to resist this concrete explanation for such a peculiar phenomenon. People always ask, what do you think causes them to move? But if you try to explain, they don't always want to hear the answers, he says. People like a mystery. They like an unanswered question. In a way, though, Lorenz's physical explanation really need not diminish the feeling of awe the sailing stones bring about. It can heighten it. You can get a sense of it by sitting at the plier and imagining the perpetual sailing of the stones over time, stretching into millennia, as human societies rise and fall, and cities are constructed and then left to disintegrate. 
The stones will glide gradually around their plier, turning back and forth. Frozen in ice and nudged by the slightest of breezes, they will endlessly carve mysterious, zigzagging paths into the hard, flat ground. And following on from this story of things moving in a strange fashion, comes this story from the HuffingtonPost.com, written by Hilary Hansen. An ancient Egyptian statue moves on its own, curators at Manchester Museum say. Don't go running to mummy just yet. The spooky movements of this Egyptian statue probably have a logical explanation. Even if museum curators are in denial about it. Staff at the Manchester Museum in Manchester, England say the 4,000 year old statue, recovered from a mummy's tomb, has been spinning without anybody moving it, NDTV reports. The 10 inch tall statue of a man named Neb Sanu was originally an offering to the god Osiris and has been in the museum for 80 years. Until a few weeks ago, the statue had appeared to be stationary. I noticed one day that it had turned around, said curator Campbell Price. I thought it was strange because it is in a case and I am the only one who has a key. Price told The Sun this week that most Egyptologists are not superstitious people and said when he first noticed the object had moved, his first instinct was to wonder who moved it. But the next time I looked, it was facing in another direction and a day later had yet another orientation, he told The Sun this week. Price returned the statue to its original position and set up a time-lapse video which he says shows the statue moving without the help of humans. According to Price, ancient Egyptians believed that statuettes such as these could act as an alternative home for the spirits of the people they represented should the body be damaged or destroyed. Nevertheless, even the Egyptians didn't expect these statues to move on their own. TV physicist Brian Cox thinks he might have a scientific explanation for the spooky movement, according to the Daily Mail. Differential friction. Cox suggested that two surfaces, the serpentine stone of the statuette and the glass shelf it is on, cause a subtle vibration which is making the statuette turn, Price told the Daily Mail. Cox's theory is supported by the fact that in the video, the statue appears to be only moving when visitors are in the museum. Price, however, is sceptical of this theory, since the statuette has been on the same surface for 80 years and has never moved before. Maybe the mummy's curse will actually be a blessing for the museum, as Price urges the public to visit and try to figure out the mystery for themselves.
And if you visit the show notes at www.origins.info, click on the link to Mysteries Abound podcast notes and then episode 72 and then the link to this article, you can see for yourself the video of the statuette turning. And you can make up your own mind. Many of us fear death. We believe in death because we have been told we will die. We associate ourselves with the body, and we know that bodies die. But a new scientific theory suggests that death is not the terminal event, we think. From the www.robertlanza.com website. Does death exist? A new theory says no. One well-known aspect of quantum physics is that certain observations cannot be predicted absolutely. Instead, there is a range of possible observations, each with a different probability. One mainstream explanation, the many worlds interpretation, states that each of these possible observations corresponds to a different universe. the multiverse. A new scientific theory called biocentrism refines these ideas. There are an infinite number of universes, and everything that could possibly happen occurs in some universe. Death does not exist in any real sense in these scenarios. All possible universes exist simultaneously, regardless of what happens in any of them. Although individual bodies are destined to self-destruct, the alive feeling, the who am I, is just a 20-watt fountain of energy operating in the brain. But this energy doesn't go away at death. One of the surest axioms of science is that energy never dies. It can neither be created nor destroyed. But does this energy transcend from one world to the other? Consider an experiment that was recently published in the journal Science showing that scientists could retroactively change something that had happened in the past. Particles had to decide how to behave when they hit a beam splitter. Later on, the experimenter could turn a second switch on or off. It turns out that what the observer decided at that point determined what the particle did in the past. Regardless of the choice you the observer make, it is you who will experience the outcomes that will result. The linkages between these various histories and universes transcend our ordinary classical ideas of space and time. Think of the 20 watts of energy as simply holo projecting either this or that result onto a screen. Whether you turn the second beam splitter on or off, it's still the same battery or agent responsible for the projection. According to biocentrism, 
Space and time are not the hard objects we think. Wave your hand through the air. If you take everything away, what's left? Nothing. The same thing applies for time. You can't see anything through the bone that surrounds your brain. Everything you see and experience right now is a whirl of information occurring in your mind. Space and time are simply the tools for putting everything together. Death does not exist in a timeless, spaceless world. In the end, even Einstein admitted, now Besso, who was an old friend, has departed from this strange world a little ahead of me. That means nothing. People like us know that the distinction between past, present and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. Immortality doesn't mean a perpetual existence in time without end, but rather resides out of time altogether. This was clear with the death of my sister Christine. After viewing her body at the hospital, I went out to speak with family members. Christine's husband, Ed, started to sob uncontrollably. For a few moments I felt like I was transcending the provincialism of time. I thought about the 20 watts of energy and about experiments that show a single particle can pass through two holes at the same time. I could not dismiss the conclusion. Christine was both alive and dead outside of time. Christine had had a hard life. She finally found a man that she loved very much. My younger sister couldn't make it to her wedding because she had a card game that had been scheduled for several weeks. My mother also couldn't make the wedding due to an important engagement she had at the Elks Club. The wedding was one of the most important days in Christine's life. Since no one else from outside our family showed, Christine asked me to walk her down the aisle to give her away. Soon after the wedding, Christine and Ed were driving to the dream house they had just bought when their car hit a patch of black ice. She was thrown from the car and landed in a banking of snow. Ed, she said, I can't feel my leg. She never knew that her liver had been ripped in half and blood was rushing into her peritoneum. After the death of his son, Emerson wrote, Our life is not so much threatened as our perception. I grieve that grief can teach me nothing, nor carry me one step into real nature. Whether it's flipping the switch for the science experiment or turning the driving wheel ever so slightly this way or that on black ice, it's the 20 watts of energy that will experience the result. In some cases the car will swerve off the road, but in other cases the car will continue on its way to my sister's dream house. Christine had recently lost a hundred pounds and Ed had bought her a surprise pair of diamond earrings. It's going to be hard to wait, but I know Christine is going to look fabulous in them the next time I see her.
and from the www.darkroastedblend.com website, London's Necropolis Railway. It's hard to conceive, but 1848 was an even worse time to be dead than usual. A cholera outbreak had recently swept through London, killing almost 15,000. Burial space was non-existent. As little as 300 acres had been allocated for the capital's needs, and space was tight, even without an epidemic. During the winter of 1848, the graveyards reached saturation point. With nowhere to bury them, the dead began to pile up. Corpses lay stacked beside churches, giving off an unholy stench. Recently interred cadavers were dug up and discarded to make more room, while toxins seeped into the water supplies, increasing the chance of another outbreak. Simply, there was nowhere left to put the dead. The first half of the 19th century had seen a rapid expansion in London's fortunes. The industrial age ushered in an era of unparalleled growth. Rural workers flocked to the city seeking work, factories mushroomed up across the east, and railway lines began to snake out from the capital, crisscrossing the length of the country. With this explosion of economic growth came one of population. In 1801, London boasted slightly under a million inhabitants. By 1851, it claimed nearly two and a half. Inexperience, disinterest and a certain laissez-faire attitude left the city ill-equipped to deal with such sudden expansion. Slums sprang up, poverty and disease became rife and cemeteries began to fill. By the time the 1848 cholera epidemic came along, it was clear something needed to be done. The city needed a cemetery to suit the times, operating on an industrial scale. It was at this time the problem came to the attention of Sir Richard Brown. Brown was fascinated by the recently emerged technology of steam trains. In 1848, Waterloo Station had only just been opened and the railways themselves were still considered something of a novelty. Brown, along with his partner Richard Spire, concocted a plan to ease the overcrowding issue with the help of this new invention. Buying up a 1,500-acre site outside Woking, they proposed the creation of a dedicated railway of the dead. A line, serviced by London and South West Rail, used for the sole purpose of transporting the deceased from London to Brookwood Cemetery for burial. If all went to plan, the new site would be capable of serving the capital for around 350 years, giving the two a monopoly, as it were, on death. The railway was inaugurated on the 13th of November 1854 with its own dedicated platform at Waterloo Station. A timetable service would transport coffins down at night and mourners by day, delivering them to one of two stations, the conformist station on Brookwood's sunny side or the non-conformist station on its dark north face. To prevent upsetting any delicate Victorian sensibilities, each coffin train was divided into classes 
to separate the dead from their poorer neighbours. Even in death, it seemed, the idea of sharing a carriage with a pauper was an anathema. Even from the outset, it was clear the service would never be as popular as envisioned. While Brown had estimated shipping around 50,000 corpses a year, the actual figure was around 3,000. Yet the LNR limped on for almost a century, throwing up a few oddities along its way. Chief among these was a trend for golfers to take advantage of the cheaper fares to walking by dressing up as mourners for the journey down. Until the 1940s, it remained a weird London institution, a ghoulish Victorian hangover that resisted time, social change and falling demand. Ultimately, it took the Luftwaffe to close it down. During the heavy bombing raid of the 16th of April 1941, the Waterloo terminus was obliterated. The LNR had shipped its last cadaver. Today, little remains of this morbid slice of London history. Only a fraction of the Brookwood terminus and the cemetery itself remains, now a minor tourist destination. Long gone, largely forgotten, the service that was meant to last for 400 years survives only as a bizarre footnote, a reminder of a distant time when men tried to monopolise death and failed. And if you visit the show notes, there are some really good photographs, scans of documents and drawings associated with this article. I can feel some hunger pains rumbling in my stomach as I'm creating the podcast. Because as I was digging around on the blog.smithsonianmag.com website, I made a collection of two little articles, all associated with food. The first is why the tomato was feared in Europe for more than 200 years. In the late 1700s, a large percentage of Europeans feared the tomato. A nickname for the fruit was the poison apple because it was thought that aristocrats got sick and died after eating them. But the truth of the matter was that wealthy Europeans used pewter plates, which were high in lead content. Because tomatoes are also high in acidity, when placed on this particular tableware, the fruit would leach lead from the plate, resulting in many deaths from lead poisoning. No one made this connection between plate and poison at the time. The tomato was picked as the culprit. Around 1880, with the invention of the pizza in Naples, the tomato grew widespread in popularity in Europe. 
But there's a little more to the story behind the misunderstood fruit stint of unpopularity in England and America, as Andrew F. Smith details in his The Tomato in America, Early History, Culture and Cookery. The tomato didn't get blamed just for what was really lead poisoning. Before the fruit made its way to the table in North America, it was classified as a deadly nightshade. A poisonous family of Solanaceae plants that contains toxins called tropane alkaloids. One of the earliest known European references to the food was made by the Italian herbalist Pietro Andre Mattioli, who first classified the golden apple as a nightshade and a mandrake, a category of food known as an aphrodisiac. The mandrake has a history that dates back to the Old Testament. It is referenced twice as the Hebrew word dudaim, which roughly translates to love apple. In Genesis, the mandrake is used as a love potion. Mattioli's classification of the tomato as a mandrake had later ramifications. Like similar fruits and vegetables in the Solanaceae family, the eggplant for example, the tomato garnered a shady reputation for being both poisonous and a source of temptation. But what really did the tomato in, according to Smith's research, was John Gerard's publication of Herbal in 1597, which drew heavily from the agricultural works of Dodoans and Lecluse. According to Smith, most of the information, which was inaccurate to begin with, was plagiarised by Gerard, a barber surgeon who misspelled words like lycopertissum in the collection's rushed final product. Smith quotes Gerard. Gerard considered the whole plant to be of rank and stinking savour. The fruit was corrupt, which he left to every man's censure. While the leaves and stalk of the tomato plant are toxic, the fruit is not. Gerard's opinion of the tomato, though based on a fallacy, prevailed in Britain and in the British North American colonies for over 200 years. Around this time, it is also believed that tomatoes were best eaten in hotter countries, like the fruit's place of origin in Mesoamerica. The tomato was eaten by the Aztecs as early as 700 AD and called the tomato, and wasn't grown in Britain until the 1590s. In the early 16th century, Spanish conquistadors returning from expeditions in Mexico and other parts of Mesoamerica were thought to have introduced the seeds to southern Europe. Some researchers credit Cortes with bringing the seeds to Europe in 1519 for ornamental purposes. Up until the late 1800s in cooler climates, tomatoes were solely grown for ornamental purposes in gardens, rather than for eating. Smith continues. John Parkinson, the apothecary to James I and botanist for King Charles I, proclaimed that while love apples were eaten by the people in hot countries to cool and quench the heat and thirst of the hot stomachs, British gardeners grew them only for curiosity and for the beauty of the fruit. The first known reference to tomato in the British North American colonies was published in herbalist William Salmon's Botanologica, printed in 1710, which places the tomato in the Carolinas. 
The tomato became acceptable edible fruit in many regions, but the United States of America weren't as united in the 18th and the early 19th century. Word of the tomato spread solely along with plenty of myths and questions from farmers. Many knew how to grow them, but not how to cook the food. By 1822, hundreds of tomato recipes appeared in local periodicals and newspapers. But fears and rumours of the plant's potential poison lingered. By the 1830s, when the love apple was cultivated in New York, a new concern emerged. The green tomato worm, measuring three to four inches in length, with a horn sticking out of its back, began taking over tomato patches across the state. According to the Illustrated Annual Register of Rural Affairs and Cultivator Almanac from 1867, edited by J.J. Thomas, it was believed that a mere brush with such a worm could result in death. The description is chilling. The tomato in all our gardens is infested with a very large, thick-bodied green worm with oblique white sterols along its side and a curved thorn-like horn at the end of its back. According to Smith's research, even Ralph Waldo Emerson feared the presence of the tomato-loving worms. They were an object of much terror, it being currently regarded as poisonous and imparting a poisonous quality to the fruit if it should chance to crawl upon it. Around the same period, a man by the name of Dr. Fuller in New York was quoted in the Syracuse Standard saying he had found a five-inch tomato worm in his garden. He captured the worm in a bottle and said it was as poisonous as a rattlesnake when it would throw spittle at its prey. According to Fuller's account, once the skin came into contact with the spittle, it swelled immediately. A few hours later, the victim would seize up and die. It was a new enemy to human existence, he said. Luckily, an entomologist by the name of Benjamin Walsh argued that the dreaded tomato worm wouldn't hurt a flea. Now that we have become familiarised with it, these fears have all vanished, and we have become quite indifferent towards this creature, knowing it to be merely an ugly-looking worm which eats some of the leaves of the tomato. The fear, it seems, had subsided. With the rise of agricultural societies, farmers began investigating the tomato's use and experimented with different varieties. According to Smith, back in the 1850s, the name tomato was so highly regarded that it was used to sell other plants at market. By 1897, innovator Joseph Campbell figured out that tomatoes keep well when canned and popularised condensed tomato soup. Today, tomatoes are consumed around the world in countless varieties. Heirlooms, romas, cherry tomatoes, to name a few. More than one and a half billion tonnes of tomatoes are produced commercially every year. In 2009, the United States alone produced 3.32 billion pounds of fresh market tomatoes. But some of the plant's nightshady past seems to have followed the tomato in pop culture. In the 1978 musical drama comedy Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, giant red blobs of the fruit terrorise the country. The nation is in chaos. Can nothing stop this tomato onslaught?
And food mystery number two. Is spaghetti and meatballs Italian? Meatballs. Juicy goodness of meat, onion, breadcrumbs, egg butter and parmigiano reggiano soaked in red sauce over a pile of spaghetti. Nothing says comfort like a big bowl of spaghetti and meatballs and nothing says Italian food like a big bowl of spaghetti and meatballs. Unless you're Italian. If you go to Italy, you will not find a dish called spaghetti and meatballs. And if you do, it is probably to satisfy the palate of the American tourist. So if not Italy, where does this dish come from? Meatballs in general have multiple creation stories all across the world, from Kotbullers in Sweden to the various koftas in Turkey. Yes, Italy has its variation of meatballs called polpetze, but they differ from their American counterpart in many ways. They are primarily eaten as a meal itself, or in soups and made with any meat from turkey to fish. Often they are no bigger in size than golf balls. In the region of Abruzzo, they can be no bigger in size than marbles and called polpettines. Polpets are more commonly found at the family table than on a restaurant menu and hold a dear place in the heart of Italian home cooking. Pellegrino Artusi was a Florentine silk merchant who in retirement followed his passion for food, travelling and recording recipes. In 1891 he earned the unofficial title of the father of Italian cuisine when he published the first modern Italian cookbook which when translated into English means The Science of Cooking and the Art of Eating Well, a practical manual for families. Atusi was the first to bring together the variety of Italy's regional cuisines into one book and also importantly the first to write for The Home Chef. Of Polpets he writes, Don't think I'm pretentious enough to teach you how to make meatballs. This is a dish that everybody can make, starting with the donkey. Needless to say, meatballs were seen as an incredibly easy dish to make, but a popular one nonetheless. But those large meatballs doused in marinara over spaghetti are 100% American. So how did spaghetti and meatballs evolve from polpettes? The answer is similar to every ethnic cuisine that travelled to this country. Immigrants had to make do with the ingredients they could find and afford. About 4 million Italians immigrated to America from 1880 to 1920. The majority came from southern Italy, where political and economic circumstances left the region extremely impoverished. So it would be the cuisines of Sicily, Calabria, Campania, Abruzzi and Molise, and not Venice, that would make their mark in the United States. These poor immigrants went from spending 75% of their income on food in Italy to only 25% of their income on food in America. With more money came more food. Just like with the Irish and corned beef, meat became a meal staple instead of a rare, if at all, luxury. The whole dynamic of food changed completely. As a result, the dynamic of the family, especially the role of women, changed greatly. Women went from scraping to put food on tables to striving to be the best cook in the neighbourhood. 
It was no longer about necessity, but now what nonna cooks what best. Though these immigrants were eating more meat than they had ever before, they were not buying filet mignon. The comforting meatballs were the perfect solution to the quality of beef available. With the boost in income, not only was more meat consumed, but in much larger quantities. The immigrants indulged, and meatballs transformed from golf balls to baseballs, and were made with significantly more meat and less bread. Whether you can taste it or not, meatballs are traditionally made with breadcrumbs, often crumpled stale bread soaked in milk, making the meatballs moist and soft. In traditional polpettes, the bread-to-meat ratio is equivalent, but the stateside version of the Italian meatball is a much denser sphere. With the meatball must come the sauce and the spaghetti. When you look at an Italian-American restaurant menu, a large portion of the dishes will most likely be in a red sauce, manicotti stuffed with shells, baked ziti, chicken parmesan, eggplant parmesan, etc. This marinara sauce originates from Naples and comes from the Italian word marinaro, meaning sailor. John Mariani explains how the sauce was named in How Italian Food Conquered the World. There was a simple one of garlic, oil and tomatoes called marinara, supposedly because it was made quickly, as soon as the mariners' wives spotted their husbands returning fishing boats in the distance. For home cooks in the United States, this sailor sauce dominated Italian-American cuisine because canned tomatoes and spaghetti were among the only items available in groceries. Which leads to the final part of the Holy Trinity, spaghetti. Though many credit Marco Polo for introducing Italy to pasta, Italians were eating it long before. The most accepted theory is the Arab invasion of Sicily in the 8th century. But since its beginning in Italy, pasta has been considered as a more of an appetizer and not a main course or side dish. It was actually American influence that invented a new role for pasta in the dinner meal. There are two theories as to how pasta vaulted to its spot as a secondo piatto. The first is that Anglo-American diners were accustomed to having a starch accompaniment to their proteins, namely potatoes. To satisfy the requests of their clientele, these early Italian restaurants married the main course meat dishes with pasta. The second theory is that spaghetti, being one of the only Italian ingredients available in the US, became more popular in the home to new immigrants who were adjusting to their new wealth of food. To close, it's instructive to look at the writings from 1950 of Sicilian restaurateur Niccolò de Quattro Giocchi, as quoted in Mariana's book. He reported in his memoirs that he'd dined at an Italian restaurant, where I was introduced to two very fine traditional American specialities called spaghetti with meatballs and cotoletta parmigiana, which he thought were, just for fun, called Italian. But added as a matter of fact, I found them both extremely satisfying and I think someone in Italy should invent them for Italians over there. So there you go. Spaghetti and meatballs may not be Italian, but it is a symbol of Italian-American cuisine 
And as the lady and the tramp may tell you, as American as Walt Disney himself. And if you visit the show notes, you can see the little video clip of Lady and the Tramp and the Spaghetti and Meatballs. If you must. They told me of a sea serpent, or snake, that lay coiled up like a cable upon the rock at Cape Ann. A boat passing by with English on board and two Indians. They would have shot the serpent, but the Indians dissuade them, saying that if he were not killed outright, they would all be in danger of their lives. From the www.unmuseum.org website, an article by Lee Christick. The Monstrous Sea Serpent of Gloucester The report by John Jocelyn in 1638 is one of the earliest sightings of an animal that would haunt the coast of New England and especially the port of Gloucester for more than three centuries and be seen by hundreds of people. The report is of a creature that science says does not exist. A sea serpent. The harbour of Gloucester, Massachusetts is located just north of Boston on the lower part of Cape Ann which juts out into the Atlantic Ocean. Gloucester has always been a seafaring town. Its harbour is well protected from Atlantic storms making it a destination for ships hauling cargo. In the 17th century, fish abounded off the coast, ready to be caught by enterprising and brave men willing to go to sea in boats. If any group of people should have known the sea and local inhabitants, it should have been the fishermen and sailors of Gloucester. Obadiah Turner reported the following incident with a similar creature off Lynn, Massachusetts, three years later. Some being on ye great beach, gathering of calms and seaweed, which had been cast thereon, be ye mighty storm, did spy a most wonderful serpent, a short way off from ye shore. He was big round in ye thickest part as a wine-pipe, and they do affirm that he was fifteen fathoms or more in length. A most wonderful tale. But ye witnesses be credible, and it would be of no account to them to tell an untrue tale. We have likewise heard yet Cape Ann ye people have seen a monster like unto this, which did not there come out of ye land, much to ye terror of them, yet did see him. Although sea serpent incidents occurred occasionally off the coast of Cape Ann and the rest of New England during the 17th and 18th centuries, It wasn't until the 19th century that the arrival of the sea serpent off the coast became a nearly seasonal phenomenon. 
The real action started in August of 1817 when two women claimed they had seen the creature swimming into the harbour. The same sea serpent was seen at almost the same time by the captain of a coasting vessel. A few days later, Mrs Amastori said she saw what appeared to be a tree trunk washed upon the rocks of Ten Pound Island, which lies in the harbour. As she watched it through a telescope, it moved, and when she looked again, it was gone. William Rowe reported seeing a creature saying its head was as broad as a horse or more so, but not quite as long. The same day, Amos Storey also saw the creature. It was between the hours of twelve and one o'clock when I first saw him, and he continued in sight for an hour and a half. I was sitting on the shore and was about twenty rods from him when he was the nearest to me. His head appeared shaped much like that of a sea turtle, and he carried his head from ten to twelve inches above the surface of the water. His head at that distance appeared larger than the head of any dog I ever saw. From the back of his head to the next part of him that was visible, I should judge to be three or four feet. He moved very rapidly through the water, I should say a mile or two, or at most, in three minutes. I saw no bunches on his back. On this day, I did not see more than ten or twelve feet of his body. Two days later, on August the 12th, shipmaster Solomon Allen III saw the Gloucester Sea Serpent. His head was formed something like the head of a rattlesnake, but nearly as large as the head of a horse. When he moved on the surface of the water, his motion was slow, at times playing in circles and sometimes moving straight forward. The creature was even shot at two days later by ship's carpenter Matthew Gaffney from a boat. I had a good gun and took good aim. I aimed at his head and I think I must have hit him. He turned towards us immediately after I had fired and I thought he was coming at us. But he sunk down and went directly under our boat and made an appearance at about 100 yards from where he sunk. Gaffney also mentions the motion of the creature through the water was vertical, like a caterpillar. There were 18 sightings of the sea serpent that year, most from Gloucester, but a few from different parts of New England. Most of the reports were very similar. A snake-like creature, 60 to 100 feet in length, with the head the size of a horse and the body the diameter of a barrel. Observers noted that the creature swam with a vertical motion and his body appeared as humps behind him. This report from Cheever Felch aboard the United States schooner, Science. His colour is dark brown, with white under his throat. His size we could not accurately ascertain, but his head is about three feet in circumference, flat and much smaller than his body. We did not see his tail, but from the end of the head to the farthest protuberance was not far from 100 feet. I speak with a degree of certainty, being much accustomed to measure and estimate distances and length. I counted 14 bunches on his back, the first one say 10 or 12 feet from the head, and the others about 7 feet apart. They decreased in size towards the tail. 
These bunches were sometimes counted with and sometimes without a glass. Mr. Melbourne counted 13, Mr. Blake 13 and 14, and the boatman the same number. His motion was partly vertical and partly horizontal, like that of freshwater snakes. I have been much acquainted with snakes in our interior waters. His motion was the same. Reports off the New England coast continued strong through the 19th century. Twelve sightings in 1839, nine in 1875 and 13 in 1886. A total of 190 for the whole hundred years. Sea serpent reports became fewer in the 20th century. A total of 56 and most of those before 1950. So what was the monstrous sea serpent of Gloucester? Most such reports are attributed to simple misidentification. Dolphins leaping in single file might look like a series of humps. The 16-foot-long elephant seal might look like a sea monster to someone unfamiliar with the giant seal. In many of the Gloucester reports, though, observers felt they were viewing something quite normal, but then changed their minds when they got closer opposite to what you would expect in a case of misidentification. For example, this report by John Brown, published in 1817. I discovered something about three or four miles distant, about two points on the weather bow, which appeared as a mast as it rose and sunk in a perpendicular manner once in about eight or ten minutes. I kept the vessel directly for it, and after looking at it with my glass, I observed to my mate that it was a wreck, as I could see timbers, etc., sticking up. But as we approached nearer, I found what appeared like timbers to be a number of porpoises and black fish playing and jumping around a large sea serpent, which had supposed to be the mast. Some sea serpent reports are hoaxes either perpetrated by individuals or in many cases by newspapers. Hoax journalism is an art which was alive in the 19th century, but has almost disappeared today. While many of the reports have been found through period newspapers, others show up in private letters, which indicates they were not part of a hoax journalism story. Even in the case of the newspaper stories, many of the references to the Gloucester Sea Serpent seem to lack the kind of sensationalism that was often a part of hoaxed articles. So how do we explain the many sightings at Gloucester and along much of the coast of New England? Was there really a sea serpent swimming along the shores? The idea that there might be such a thing as a sea serpent is not as preposterous as it sounds at first. We certainly know that millions of years ago, at the time the dinosaurs ruled the land, giant marine reptiles some 80 feet in length ruled the seas. Some people have suggested that some version of these creatures managed to survive the great extinction at the end of the Cretaceous era that killed the dinosaurs. They think that the snake-like body reported might be the long neck of an Elasmosaurus or the back of a Mosasaur. The Gloucester sea serpent might not necessarily be a Cretaceous leftover though. Plenty of sea snakes are alive today living in tropical waters. While these are much smaller than any sea serpent reported in New England, one snake does nearly reach the sizes mentioned. 
the anaconda. Anacondas live in South American waters and have been reported at up to 37 feet in length with the girth of a telephone pole. They live mostly in fresh water and rarely venture into open sea. However, is it so incredible to believe that there might be a cousin of the anaconda which is twice the length and diameter and lives in the open sea? If the Gloucester reports are genuine and accurate, why are there so few in 20th century and almost none in the past few years? J.P. O'Neill, author of The Great New England Sea Serpent, theorises that the deterioration of the once fertile fishing areas off of New England by overfishing may have caused the creature to find another place to eat or even go extinct. Ironically, that would mean that a hundred years ago there was once a population of sea serpents, but now they are gone. The last sighting in New England was off the coast of Marshfield, Massachusetts in 1962. There were no reports in the 1970s or 1980s at all. With careful protection of the fisheries though, hopefully the population of fish may rebound. Will it be in time to help the Gloucester Sea Serpent? Assuming, of course, that this creature ever really existed at all. Perhaps there is some hope. In 1997, after over 30 years of silence, a report came from Fortune Bay, Newfoundland. It turned its head and looked right at us. All we could see was a neck six feet long, a head like a horse, but his dark eyes were on the front of his face. Perhaps the sea serpent is not dead, but just waiting to return to his summer feeding grounds near Gloucester Harbour. The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website. The bandwidth for the podcast is provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. The show notes with links to the articles used in my podcasts reside at the Origins show notes website, www.origins.info. And if you'd like to keep up to date with the podcasts and what's happening with them and to me, it's on the Facebook site, www.facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy. And if you'd like to provide support for the show, the best way to do it is via feedback. Somewhere like iTunes is greatly appreciated as it raises the profile of the podcast or via email. And my email address link is at the show notes right on the front page. And to bring the podcast to a close, a story by Jacob Newell from the www.creepypasta.com website. And the story is entitled, Last of the Sparks. Back in February of 2008, I decided that I needed a change in my monotonous life. Whether that change would come in the form of a new job or a new toothbrush, I didn't know. 
I was never the most adventurous person. I've always found it difficult to veer away from my comfort zone, and the limit of my existence usually depended upon which book I was reading at the time. It took me a while to realise that my happiness often derived from the stories that my mind was living in. I was an avid bookworm, as miserable a synecdoche as that is. Once I realised my true outlet, I immediately knew what I wanted. I purchased a small shop, quit my boring job, renovated the building and transformed it into a bookstore. I had never been happier. The next two years were the best of my life. The store had become a huge hit with the locals. My perspective on work had been completely altered and I was feeling genuinely happy for the first time since my childhood. It was during the winter of 2010 that she walked into my store. She stepped inside out of the snow and approached me with a large bin bag. Etchings of age covered her pale face and hands. She must have been at least 80 years old. Slamming the bag on the counter, she simply said, These are for you. I looked inside the bag to find a selection of some of the greatest novels ever written. Why? Do you want money for these or some kind of book trade? I asked, confusingly. No, they're yours to have. Take them. She gave me a feeling of uneasiness. Her dirty grey fringe slightly concealed her face as a cold gaze met my vision. Are you sure you want me to have them? Wouldn't you rather sell them? No, I have no use for them, nor for money. Okay, thank you. What's your name? Lucy. She muttered her final words and left my store. I found it all too strange that somebody would give away such great books for nothing. But I suppose some people are just nice. I made my way home that night and took the books with me so that I could go through them. I piled them up on the table and was surprised to see that all of them were in fantastic condition. A couple of them seemed to be first editions, and others were versions that I had never seen before. It took me a moment to realise that the novels that I was looking at were not as I had remembered them to be. The first book that I picked up was The Green Mile. On the front cover, there was an image of John Coffey smiling and holding two dead naked girls. I opened it up and flicked through the pages. In this version of the novel, he was in fact guilty of the rape and murder of both children. I made my way to the end of the book and read through the execution scene. All of the officers who had originally grown to love John Coffey in the original novel were now laughing uncontrollably and screaming racial taunts as he was being executed. My eyes had seen enough and my stomach had felt enough too. The next book I picked up was The Catcher in the Rye. The artwork on the front page seemed to be of a dead body splattered on the street, drawn from an aerial view. I flicked through the book until I reached chapter 14. After Holden Caulfield speaks of messing with the idea of suicide, he suddenly breaks down in tears and jumps from the window, cracking his skull on the pavement. The book abruptly ended after that. I then picked up The Lord of the Flies. The defining image on this novel was of a large child with the face of a pig. He was covered in blood and surrounded by decaying corpses. 
After grazing through the pages, I reached a point in the story in which Piggy is described as being non-human, vicious and a hungry animal. A chapter or so later, Jack insults Piggy, which leads to him losing his temper and ripping him apart. Piggy then proceeds to kill and eat the rest of the children. The remainder of the book was the same line, repeated over and over. Piggy sat alone on the island, waiting for death. I read through the few books that were left in the pile, and they had all been changed in some sick way. The Great Gatsby, Wuthering Heights, To Kill a Mockingbird, Ulysses, every one of them. Just as I reached the bottom of the pile, I noticed that the final book was one that I had never even heard of before. It was called Last of the Sparks. I found this slightly unnerving, as I immediately paired it with my name, Aaron Sparks. Still, it was just a book. The front cover was of six gravestones with words too small to be read etched into the granite. I looked up into the top corner of the book and noticed that there was a sell-by date on it. 6-4-2013. I nervously opened it up to the beginning of the story. Chapter 1. Alice Sparks. My stomach dropped as I read my mother's name upon the page. I felt dizzy and confused as I anxiously made my way through the chapter. It seemed to detail a regular day in the life of the character until I reached the last page. Alice was crossing over the road when the heel of her shoe broke, causing her to fall. She didn't get to her feet fast enough and a speeding driver struck her, puncturing both of her lungs. I felt sick to my stomach. I put the book down and got straight into bed hoping for some sleep. I lay awake all night, as countless questions ran through my mind. The only thought that managed to put me to sleep was, it's just a book. The next morning when I got to work I was feeling worse for wear. It wasn't until around lunchtime that I began to perk up and regain a bit of energy. Then the phone rang. I answered the call to my father, crying on the other end. I immediately knew what had happened. I closed the shop and ran to the hospital, but it was already too late. She was gone. Hit by a speeding driver, they said. I spent the next couple of weeks taking care of my dad. My brother and I and my sister stayed with him in turns and looked after him. We all looked after each other. It wasn't until a few months later that I picked up Last of the Sparks. It had just scared me so much the last time. I opened it up to page 37, and there it was, chapter 2, Patrick Sparks. This story was more of the same, a day in the life, right up till the part in which he shot himself in the kitchen whilst on the phone to his son. I ran to the phone to speak to him, comfort him, but then I realised what I may be doing. The phone picked up at the other end and before I could say a word, he was gone. I got my black suit and tie out once more and repeated the same process for another parent. It ruined us all. After the funeral I refused to touch the book. What if I had been causing these deaths by reading it? I couldn't go through it all again. But on Christmas Eve of 2011 I got a phone call from my brother's wife, Heather. Will had been putting up Christmas lights on the roof 
when he slipped on ice and broke his neck. He died almost instantly. I threw the phone at the wall and began to sob into my sleeve. Anger took the pain away for a moment as I picked up the book and read through chapter 3. It was exactly as Heather had described. I fell asleep and woke up the next day with the book still on my lap. I decided to check who was going to go next out of me and my sisters and hopefully warn them, or myself in some way. I turned the page. Chapter 4. Mary and Sarah Sparks. I rushed through the story as fast as I could until I reached the end. Both of my sisters and their partners would drown in a lake after colliding with another car on a one-way bridge. That same sickly feeling took over me. I met with my sisters later that day to exchange gifts and I told them as calmly as I could muster to be careful when driving. I had to sound as sane as possible mentioning the lake the bridge and the fact that all four of them would be in the car at the same time. But at least I had told them. Mary and Sarah drowned eight months later in August 2012. After I went to the funeral, I picked up the book and turned to the final pages. Chapter 5. Aaron Sparks. But I didn't read it. I'd rather not live in fear for so long, so I decided to save it for nearer the time. After all, there was a sell-by date on it for a reason. Everything has been normal for the past five months or so, although I've lost interest in reading, so I'm back to my old, miserable self. I questioned myself every day as to why she was doing this to me, but it didn't matter. It was all going to be over soon anyway. I've just finished reading the final chapter. It's 6-4-2013 and I'm sitting in my basement waiting for her to arrive. That's the way the ending goes, or so I've read. Well, everyone, that concludes the episode 72 of the Mysteries Abound podcast. Does death exist? Hope you enjoyed today's show. And until next time, whether it be Mysteries Abound or the Origins podcast, this is Paul saying bye for now and keep well, everyone. And this little piece of music is called The Dream Catchers by Absinthe Twilight. Only goes for two minutes, but it'll just take the podcast out to a nice, calm conclusion. Bye for now everyone.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.